Volume One, Chapter Twenty One of Cats. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kate Sterner. Cats, their points and characteristics, with curiosities of cat life, and a chapter on feline ailments, by W. Gordon Staples, Volume One, Chapter One. THE MILLER'S FRIEND, A TALE You might have travelled many a long summer's day, and not met with such another. The very look of him was enough to dispel all ideas of hunger. He was so big and so stout, yet withal so rosy and hardy. His voice had a cheery ring with it, which, combined with the merry twinkle in his eye, set you on good terms with yourself at once, if indeed it did not make you laugh outright. As for his laugh, to hear it once was to remember it for ever. It was hearty, it was musical, in pitch something between the ha-ha-ha and the ho-ho-ho, and it rang through the old mill, wakening a dozen sleeping echoes, and causing the old bulldog to bark, although that quadruped had to lean against a pillar to perform the feat. The miller wasn't a young man by any means, but though he had no wife, he was the jolliest widower you ever saw, albeit his hair and whiskers were like the powdery snow, but his voice, ay, that was the bit, you should have heard it rising in song-snatches, and rolling over the double bass of the grinding-wheels, and the shrill clack-clack of that merry old mill. He was honest, moreover. No one in the parish had ever been heard to accuse him of giving light weight, or adding sand to the meal to make it turn the scale sooner. And as a matter of course, he was a general favourite, especially among the farmer's daughters and servant-maids. So much so, indeed, that all around the country it became the general custom to take meal by stone instead of by the bushel, that the errands to the mill might be all the more frequent. And indeed, however dull a lass might be, when she was going to the mill she never left it without a rosier blush on her bonny cheek, and a smile playing about her lips, as she trundled cheerily along with her bag upon her head. Yes, indeed, had he wanted a wife, the miller might have married the youngest of them all. Such was the miller, and such, too, were the race he sprang from. They were in the habit of getting young again, just at the age that other folks began to get old. They were in their prime at eighty, and never thought of departing this life, until the dial shadow of their existence began to creep near the hundred. Then all at once it used to strike old death that he had forgotten all about them, so he would lift his scythe and cut them down smartly and suddenly. And as the miller was jolly, so everything about the old mill was jolly too. There was music in the mill-head as the waters leapt joyously under the sluice and hurried along to their task. And the great wheel itself, as it turned slowly and steadily round, seemed actually bursting with suppressed merriment. Then you should have seen the sweet little bit of scenery the mill was set down in. Ah, English tourists have yet to learn that there is one part of Scotland yet unhackneyed, yet uncockneyed, yet unspoiled, but still romantic enough to repay a journey from London town. The mill was built by the banks of the Wimpling Don, built in a dingle green rolling brace, sloping up at one side, steep rocks on the other and the river, here, broad and formidable, rippling between. On the top of the rocks waved a tall pine forest. 
Some of the trees hung by their roots over the cliff, just as the storm had left them. "'Twas sweet in summer-time to hear the birds singing in that forest, or to see the crimson glow of sunset glimmering through the branches. But how tall and dark and weirdly looked those trees, as they stretched their branches up into the green frosty sky of a quiet winter's gloaming. To my friend the miller this wood had an especial attraction, for within its shade he had wooed his first, his early love. If you had scaled the little footpath that struggled up through the rocks, at the place where they were less precipitous, and finally gained the cliff, just at the point where Snuffy Sandy tumbled over in the dark and broke his neck, you would have come to a little footpath that went windingly away among the tall, solemn Scotch pines, to the roots of the sun which penetrated even at noon, and whose massive trunks might have been mistaken in the sombre light for the pillars in some gigantic cavern. Onward for a quarter of an hour you would suddenly have found yourself in a clearing in the midst of the forest. This clearing was fully a square mile in extent, and was tastefully laid out as a little farm, neat cottage and garden, barnyard, field and fence, and all complete, as snug a little place as you could wish to see. Owing to its situation, there was quite an understanding between the domestic animals and the denizens of the surrounding wood. In summer-time the hare and the rabbit browsed peacefully beside the cows and the sheep. The birds came regularly to the latter for a supply of wool to line their nests. The hens and ducks shared their oats amicably with the wild pigeons. And old Dobbin the horse, who used to be tethered among the clover, didn't mind the cows a bit. They used his back as a sort of moving hustings on which to debate politics or have an occasional stand-up fight and when Dobbin lay down to rest they lovingly picked his cheek. And everything immediately around the cottage was as natty and neat as the little farm itself. The greenest of garden gates led you up into the sprucest of little gardens. The box was neatly trimmed. Never a blade of grass grew on the gravel, and although there were not many flowers, it did one's heart good in early spring to see the blue and yellow crocuses creeping through the dun earth and the sweet-scented primrose discs, diamonded with dew, reclining on the delicate green of their tender leaves. There was a rustic porch around the cottage door. It was formed on the unbarked stems of the spruce fir tree, with just an inch of branch left on for effect, and the door itself boasted a brass knocker bright enough to shave at. And had you knocked and been invited, Ben, to the best parlor, you would have found everything there, too, both trig and trim. There was nothing either on the mantelpiece or on the walls to offend your feelings. There were no hideous ornaments or foxy lithographs, but shells and grass and moss, and a few modest engravings and photos of friends. Instead of a chiffonier, there was a neat chest of drawers, and instead of a piano, a spinning-wheel. At this latter, Nanny, when not milking or attending to household matters, sat beering all day long, making music which, if not apparatic, was at least natural, and suited Nanny, and pleased the cat to a nicety. Nanny, of course, was the presiding goddess of the cottage and farm. The place was all her own. She kept a man and a laddie to do the outwork, and a tidy bit of a girl to assist her indoors. Nanny, from all accounts, must have been alarmingly near forty, though she looked a full dozen of years younger, and beautiful for even that age beautiful in regularity of features, in just sufficient color, and in a lack of all coarseness. 
taking her figure and all combined you would have said that if not a lady she was at least born to adorn a higher sphere she had never been married but didn't look an old maid by any means for nanny had had her little history and merry and cheerful as she always was during the day still when the day's duties were over and she had retired to her little chamber after she had read her chapter and psalm and sat down to muse there would come a strange sad look in her eyes and at times a tear stood there as she took from her pocket a portrait and a lock of dark brown hair and that portrait on which she gazed so fondly although the face was younger was the miller's his too though different in colour that lock of hair tied with blue that seemed to cling caressingly round poor nanny's finger for the miller and she had loved each other all their lives long oh their story is quite a common one a lover's quarrel a harsh word and a silent parting that was all and the miller had gone off in a pet and married a woman double his age the marriage was as uncongenial as snow in summer but now though his wife had been long in her grave the miller though he knew he could get forgiveness at once from nanny never went to ask it feeling he had erred too deeply to deserve it so they had lived for years those two loving hearts with only the pine forest and the broad river between them one dark christmas morning the miller was astir long before his usual time for there was more to do than he could well manage there was barley to prepare for christmas broth and meal for christmas brose though long before the sun had dreamt of getting out of bed he had hauled up the sluice the waters rushed headlong on towards the great mill-wheel and the great mill-wheel turned slowly round and suddenly the old mill previously as silent and as dark as the grave became instinct with life and sound it was a good quarter of a mile walk from the mill-dam sluice to the mill hundreds of times he had gone the road before but on this particular morning somehow or other the miller felt peculiarly nervous it was so dark and everything was so still and being christmas morning what more likely than that he should see a ghost he tried to sing but for once in his life he failed and he felt a quiet sense of relief when the farmer's cocks awoke and began hallooing to each other all over the country so in no enviable frame of mind he reached the mill and opened the door the old dog came to meet him and he struck a light and shaking off for a time his superstitious fears he donned a dusty coat and set to work in earnest first there was the corn to spread upon the kiln that done he went below to put a match to the kiln fire which was already laid in this furnace it was not coals that were burned nor wood either but the outside husks of the oats themselves what are called in scotland shealings this made a roaring fire and was easily lit all was darkness when the miller went down but he soon had both light and heat indeed from the latter he was fain to stand back and so leaning on his shovel as he contemplated his work with the firelight playing around his handsome face and figure and the darkness behind him he would have formed no mean study for a painter but suddenly the spade dropped from his grasp his face turned pale pale as it never would be again until death set his seal on it and the perspiration stood in big drops on his brow while his frightened gaze was riveted on the furnace before him he had seen a face in the fire apparently that of a demon what else could it be black and unearthly looking 
with white teeth and green glaring eyes. It showed but a moment, and disappeared again in the smoke beneath the kiln. For a few seconds, which seemed like ages, he stood there transfixed. Then again that awful face in the blaze, and this time a horrid yell, which seemed to rend the very mill, and somehow sprang wildly from the furnace, sprung at him, over him, through him. Somehow or anyhow the miller could not tell he had tumbled down in a dead faint. Daylight was just coming in when he awoke. The fire was black out, and the mill still grinding away at nothing in particular. Outside the snow lay on the ground to a depth of several inches. It was no wonder then that the poor miller began to shiver as soon as he gathered himself up. He shivered, and when he thought of that terrible apparition he shuddered as well as shivered. "'An awful visitation,' he muttered to himself. "'A truly awful visitation on a Christmas morning.' And he began to wonder what he had ever done to deserve it. He went over his whole life, honest man. It had been anything but a checkered or eventful one, and finally came to the conclusion that it must be a judgment on him for forsaking his early love. "'Poor lonely nanny,' he sighed, as he dragged himself wearily away to begin his work. The miller was a steady, sober man, but he did feel glad when visitors began to arrive at the mill, and being Christmas morning, bring a bottle with them. But he could not find exhilaration in the whiskey, no, nor consolation either. He simply could not get warm. Only his face seemed to glow, and there was a weight at his heart, as if he had swallowed one of his own millstones. When at last the day were over and he found himself at home, he thought he had never felt so tired in his life before. His decent old buddy of a housekeeper marked how ill he looked, and insisted on putting him to bed at once with a bottle of hot water, an extra blanket, and a basin of gruel. Next day the miller was in a raging fever, and for many weeks he seemed only hovering between life and death. Mrs. Fowler, as his housekeeper was called, could not have been more kind to him if he had been her own son. But one day she said to herself, as she looked upon his poor worn face, "'I see I cannot cure him, and the man will die if assistance does not come soon. I'll try it, I'll try it.' What the trying it had reference to we shall soon see. Mrs. Fowler put on her Sunday's gown and bonnet, put on her scarlet shawl and her sable boa, and telling the miller she would soon return, went out into the keen January air, and took her way to the bridge that spanned the rapid Don, for the good lady was far too old to try the ford or climb the rocks, or trust herself in the dark little footpath that led through the forest to Nanny's house. She arrived there in good time for all that. Nanny was spinning, but strange to say she was always glad to see Mrs. Fowler, so she put aside the reel and bustled about to get tea ready. "'And is he getting any better?' asked Nanny at length, referring to the miller. The question was asked in seemingly a half-careless tone, but none knew but herself how her heart was beating all the while. "'Na, na, poor man,' said Janet, for that was her maiden name, "'he is no long for this world.' Nanny had turned away her head and buried her face in her hands. Presently she was sobbing like a child. Janet spoke not. Oh, cried poor Nanny, I must, I shall see him before he dies. Then Janet spoke. 
and god in heaven bless you my bonny baron for those words for you the only one in this weary world that can save his life no but said nanny if he really is going to live you know i ah uh. oh the inconsistency of women a moment before she would have given all she possessed in the world for one glance of the loved face now because he was going to live oh dear but janet hastened to tell her all the story how in his wild delirium he had spoke of no one raved of no one save her and now that the fever had subsided and left him weak as a baby how he always led the subject on to nanny his early love their rambles in the pine forest and his cruel desertion of her and how he always wound up with the melancholy reflection that he knew poor nanny would forgive him when she saw him being carried to his langham and so well did janet represent the whole matter and argue her case that nanny gave her consent to go along with her even then and she had laughed and cried at the same time in quite a hysterical way as she said well mrs fowler <laughs> you know best <laughs> if you really think it will do the poor man good i'll go and-but oh mistress fowler i must have a cry and she did and it really seemed to do her good for she smiled quite calm and happy-like afterwards the heightened flush in her cheeks making her look ten times prettier and she was soon dressed and ready to march just as she was going out however her countenance fell and oh mistress fowler my poor cat cried nanny your cat said janet ay woman my cat replied nanny come and see the poor darling somehow or other it got dreadfully burnt about three weeks ago and it isn't better yet come and see that a cat said janet with uplifted hands and eyes deary me in good sooth it might have been taken for a kangaroo or anything else you liked there wasn't a hair on its whole body, and although the wounds and scars were healed, it was still in a state of prostration and debility. It purred kindly, however, when its mistress gently stroked it, showing how fully it appreciated her kindness. "'You'll even take the poor thing with you, Nanny,' said old Janet. Three whole hours,' said the miller to himself as he lay in bed and looked up at the old-fashioned eight-day clock whose melancholy ticking had been his only solace since Janet left. Three whole hours, and she promised she would be back in one. Presently big flakes of snow began to fall slowly groundwards, and the poor man's spirits seemed to fall along with them. It was so gloomy being all alone in the house. The very fire had forsaken him, and he shivered as he gazed out into the fast-closing winter's day. He remembered how different had been his feelings one evening, long, long ago, when he had stood with her by his side, looking upwards through the maze of snowflakes, how they had crept closer together from the cold, and sworn to be forever near each other. Ah, that lost love! He was sure he was dying, even now, and how dreadful he thought it was to die all alone. He wondered if she would feel sorry when she heard of his death, and then he slept a nasty fitful starting sleep with painful racking dreams now he was climbing interminable precipices every moment ready to fall now he was walking over long trackless moors that would never never have an end 
and now he was toiling at the mill with wheels, wheels all around him, and horrid shapes with brown skinny arms that tried to clutch and pull him down among the dark grinding machinery. Then he screamed, or tried to scream, and at once his dream took another form. He seemed to be lying in his own room, and could hear the ticking of the old clock, but it was no longer dark and dismal. The blinds were drawn, the lamp was lit, a cheerful fire burned on the clean-swept hearth, and the kettle sang on the hob, and, ah, blissful vision! There, beside the bed, sat Nanny, his Nanny, as he had seen her years and years ago. A bright blush was on her cheek, and her bonny eyes were bent on his face with so sad a look. The miller held his breath lest the vision should vanish into darkness. "'Oh! oh!' cried poor Nanny. "'He doesn't know me! He doesn't know me!' And she hid her face on his breast and sobbed aloud. Now he knew it was no dream. He stretched out his arms. But it had all come so suddenly. Everything seemed to swim before his eyes, and his head sank like lead on the pillow. He had fainted. When he opened his eyes again, it was only to meet once more Nanny's loving, anxious gaze. He could only smile as he pressed her hand, and fell into a sleep sweeter than he had slept since childhood. Well may the poet call sleep nature's sweet restorer, but there is something more important than even sleep itself, and without which refreshing sleep can never come, happiness and contentment. Physics, or mental treatment, is not now overlooked by medical men as it used to be, and if ever the philosopher's stone, or the secret of making men immortal, be found, it will be through this science. It was far into the middle of next day before the miller awoke. He felt a sensation of happiness at his heart even before he opened his eyes or remembered the cause. The cause, indeed, was just then getting ready his breakfast. It was a clear frosty day outside, with the sky ever so bright and blue, and the whole landscape white with dry powdery snow, and inside everything as neat as new pins. How pretty and homelike Nanny looked, bustling about with her peachy cheeks and her nut-brown hair. It was quite refreshing to look at her, at least so the miller thought, and he gave a big double-shuffle sigh, like what a child does when it is just finishing a good cry. "'Oh, you're awake, are you?' said Nanny, going to the bedside and taking his hot hand between her cold little palms. "'I've been keeking at you from under the coverlet for more than an hour,' said the miller, honestly. "'And what made you come, Nanny?' "'I heard you were dying, John.' "'Oh, bless you, bless you, poor lassie. It is mere than kind. It's what only an angel would do. But if ye knew what I've suffered all these lang, lang years—' I do know, John. Janet has told me everything. And bygones are bygones, and I'm forgiven? Bygones are bygones, John, and you're forgiven. Nanny, said the miller emphatically, that wee devilock imp that laboot at me through the kiln-fire was a saint, I'll be sworn. It's here, said Nanny. Eh? said John, somewhat nervously. Here, continued Nanny, and she held up the cat which had been sleeping cosily at the miller's feet all the night. 
"'Dear me, dear me,' said the invalid. "'Well, well, the devilock was a cat. "'Your cat, after all. "'Well, Nanny, it's no bonny, but Lord bless it, "'give me it till I take it into my bosom.' "'Pussy, purring, was duly deposited under the bedclothes, "'and then Nanny enjoined her patient not to talk any more. "'But,' she added, "'you do feel better, don't you?' "'Better, Nanny,' quoth John. "'If I had any mortal thing on besides my sark, "'I would rise this very minute and dance the real obogie.' "'It was a treat to John to see Nanny infusing the tea "'in Janet's best brownstone. "'It was a treat to see her kneeling there, "'making the toast and then putting on the butter, "'and crushing the hard edges with the knife, "'and seaming it across and across, "'that the butter might find its way to the interior.' and it was a treat to see the way she placed the little table at his pillow-side, and spread a clean white towel over the tray that held the plates for the toast and the pot with the fragrant tea. But when she placed her own cup on the same tray and sat down beside him, John was indeed a happy man, and scarcely a mouthful could he swallow for looking at her, although she had cut the tender juicy steak into the most tempting tiny morsels that ever were seen. Now, although the miller began to revive, from the very day that Nanny first became his gentle nurse, still he had a hard tussle for his life, and the winter snow had melted, the ploughed fields, dotted here and there with sacks of golden grain, were changing from black to brown in the spring sunshine, ere, leaning on Nanny's arm, he could take even a short walk. It was wonderful, though, the amount of good even that first little outing did him. It seemed to put new life into his veins, to see the buds coming out on the trees, the grass turning green, the sturdy farmers busy scattering the corn with the reverend-looking rooks in swallow-tail coats religiously following at their heels. Oh, bless you, it was the worms, not the grain, they were gobbling up. To the upper moorland the peewits had returned, and the curlew was mingling his shrill scream with their laughing voices. And, of course, there was the lark up yonder in heaven's blue, all a-quiver with song, and ever anon cocking his head, and giving another look down, to see if that hussy of a hen of his, who couldn't sing a stave to save her life, was duly appreciating his efforts to amuse her. Well, then, if I tell you that the soft spring wind was blowing balmily from the southwest, as properly educated spring winds always ought to do, and do blow, you will not marvel that, when the miller last sought the house, there was a brighter look in his eye, and that the roses of returning health had already begun to bud on his cheeks. Old Janet met him at the door, and noted this. "'Aye, my lad,' she said, with a cheery nod, "'you'll live yet a while.' That same evening Janet beckoned Nanny into her own room, having closed the door. "'Now,' she said, "'my dear lassie, I'm just going to tell you, you've done your duty like a Christian. With the blessing of God ye have saved John's life. Do you really think he's out of danger, then? asked Nanny, anxiously. He'll be in danger lang enough if you bide only mare with him, answered Janet, in Scottish bruteness. You'll even gang home in the morn, my lass, and I'll make John himself come over and thank you for all you done for him, as soon as he can walk as far, and mark my words he won't let that be long. So next morning Nanny took her departure back to her little farm in the pine forest, but Pussy had no such intention, 
she had quite recovered the effects of her late incineration and had got a complete new coat of the silkiest fur besides she had taken quite a fancy to the miller for here again cats are like women allow them to nurse and attend you when ill and they are sure to love you there were water rats to catch in the dam mice in the mill and plenty of trout in the mill lead and this cat was madly fond of sport so she stayed nanny was right about the miller's recovery every day he extended his walk a little farther and by and by was quite able to superintend matters at the mill well one fine morning when the countryside was busy laying down the turnips john dressed in his best with a smart cane in his hand for the day was to be big with his fate took the road and shaped his course for nanny's farm mind you all the time that nanny was nursing him john never breathed a word of his love for her or his hopes for the future he was much too honourable to take so unfair an advantage nanny was busy in her little garden and either the pleasure of meeting the miller or the excitement of labour had flushed her cheeks and made her look very pretty indeed i just came over to help you with the garden a bit said john the hypocrite for thanks to you nanny i'm just as strong as a young colt so they worked in the garden most industriously all day just like a second edition of adam and eve and at sunset nanny set out to convoy the miller through the pine wood now although they had both been chattering all day like a couple of magpies neither now had a word to say nevertheless they took the path as if by instinct that led down to the hazel copse that overlooked the wimpling dawn there were yellow primroses growing here and wild sorrel and a mossy bank and on this our lovers sat ah said john it does seem strange but this is the very spot where we parted years ago and in anger dear lassie nanny was silent you'll marry me now won't you continued john a soft warm hand placed in his was the reply a wee mouth held up to kiss and a face all wet with tears what little fools women are to be sure in the first harvest moon the miller and she were wed there was a wedding breakfast a wedding dinner and i a wedding ball to this latter came all the flower of the country it was held in the old mill and began as early as six in the evening never before in the countryside had such a rant been seen or heard tell of there were three small fiddles and a blind bass beside a clarinet and a squinting fifer what do you think of that for music and there were four-and-twenty sweetie wives round the door with baskets full to the brim and they were all sold out before morning think of that now the english reader has little notion of how important a personage a sweetie wife is at a country ball the sweeties are made up in little ornament sixpenny bags and to these a young man treats his partner after a dance so you may tell how any girl is appreciated by the number of bags of sweeties in her possession highest of all is the belle of the ball herself a lovely and stately girl who will only dance with men with beards and who has so many bags that her pockets will hold no more so she keeps dealing them out with a queenly hand to her plainer and less fair friends then there are stars of lesser magnitude with enough but none to spare and minor constellations with perhaps a dozen bags then there are ten bag beauties and seven bag beauties and five bag beauties three bag beauties and beauties with never a bag at all who have only been thought worthy of getting their sweeties in loose handfuls ay 
that was a ball. The miller had given orders that the lads and lasses should dance the daylight in, and that not even a sweetie wife should go home sober. Then, hey, how the fiddlers played, hey, how the dancers danced, and hey, how the sweeties flew. And then, during a lull, the miller himself and his pretty wife came in to dance one reel, just for fashion's sake. Oh, dear, wasn't the floor quickly filled? The fiddlers played as they hadn't played yet, and the way the old blind bass screwed his mouth and turned up the whites of his eyes was a caution to see. The tune was that rattling old Scottish Strathspree, The Dance of the Drone. And you should just have heard the cracking of thumbs and the hooching. If you had had a single drop of Scottish blood, twelve generations removed, you would have been on your pins at once. But when they came to the reel, the hooches were fired off like pistol shots till they ended in one jubilant hurrah, and the rafters rang as the music stopped. Then steaming whiskey punch was handed round the bumpers from buckets, and all drank the miller's health and the miller's wife's health, and long life and happiness and three times three with highland honours. Then the miller and his bride drove off, in a real carriage and pair, mind you, with wedding favours on the horses' heads and tassels at their ears. Oh, none of your half-and-half -half affairs! and eight-and-forty old shoes from four-and-twenty old sweetie-wives came whistling after them as they rattled round the corner and were lost to view. I'm in a position to state that John and his nanny spent a most happy honeymoon in the highlands of their native land, in that most pleasant of all seasons when the bloom still lingers on the heather and the autumn tints are on the trees. Years have fled since then, but the old mill-wheel goes merrily round as in the days of yore, and Nanny and John are still alive, and likely to live for many a long year. And when the miller returns from his labour of an evening to his home in the pine-wood, there are a clean fireside and a singing kettle to welcome him, and better still, a little curly-haired boy with his mother's eyes, and a wee baby girl with its father's dimples and its mother's smile. Pussy is getting old, but in the long fornights of winter she loves to play with the little ones on the rug, or lull them to sleep with her drowsy purr. But when summer days are fine, she will follow them far afield, and the children gather gowans on the lees, and string them into garlands to hang around her neck. And at sundown, Pussy, they think, must be very tired. The good-natured cat humours the bairnie's fancy, and pretends to be nothing short of dead beat, and so they carry Pussy home. End of Volume 1, Chapter 21 Recording by Kate Sterner, Minneapolis, Minnesota